Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. It is Saturday, November 19th, 2011. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here, and praise Christ. Tonight we have something a little different. We shall be listening to Mike Stathis of AVA Investment Analytics. Mike serves as the Chief Investment Strategist of AVA Investment Analytics, an investment research firm assisting in hedge funds, endowments, assisting financial advisors, and individual investors. He oversees all research and trading at the firm, including investment strategy, valuation analysis, market forecasting, risk management, and distressed securities analysis. Prior to Apex Advisors, Mike worked at UBS, the United Bank of Switzerland, Bear Stearns, focusing on asset management and merchant banking. He holds a master's degree of science in biological chemistry and biophysics from the University of Pennsylvania and was formerly a National Science Foundation research fellow at UC Berkeley. As the only expert who predicted the financial apocalypse in detail, as we shall see, Mike has been a valuable source of guidance for investors, helping them to navigate the real estate and banking crisis, as well as the resulting global economic collapse, which we are in the midst of now. The accuracy of his predictions has positioned him as one of America's most insightful and creative financial experts. Mike is certainly not the usual sort of person that most of the people who listen to and read Christogenia .org may encounter, someone coming straight from the heart of economic Babylon. But in our world here at Christogenia, we would recognize and readily applaud a lot of the things that Mike Stathis has to say, even if we do not know the inner complexities of the world of capital and finance. Yet in that world which he comes from, Mike is indeed a very unique individual. We became interested in him once we saw the video that he produced entitled How the Jewish Mafia Screwed You. Although he comes from a Greek Orthodox background, Mike was not a church-going practitioner of religion and has no real religious affinities. He attended the University of Pennsylvania, a school with a high percentage of Jewish students, without ever having had any reason to think any differently of Jews than he thought of any other ethnic or religious group. Surrounded by Jews, he barely if ever took exception to their Jewishness. Educated as a chemist, professionally Mike found himself in a very different environment working as a broker for UBS and Bear Stearns. An, ac an acute observer of trends in the markets and in the American economy, in 2006 Mike wrote a book, America's Financial Apocalypse, How to Profit from the Next Great Depression, a depression which our nation and, and much of the world currently finds its self-embroiled in, as Mike tells it, although the usual pundits refuse to admit the reality. Among other things, Mike predicted the last several market highs and lows and also foresaw the collapse of the mortgage securities industry and especially the insolvency of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac well before they went bust in August of 2008. However, Mike's for market forecasts are not merely the vague generalities we hear in the mass media and which are usually dead wrong. Rather, he has a long track record of in-depth research resulting in accurate market forecasts. For instance, in his 2006 book, America's Financial Apo Collapse, I'm sorry, America's Financial Apocalypse, Mike forecasts the following. In Chapter 14, he predicted the collapse of the commodities bubble in 2008-2009 and told readers that that would be the time to buy. Remember, the book was published 
in 2006. On page 219, he warned that the credit rating agencies were passing AAA ratings to risky mortgage debt. On pages 386 through 342, he predicted the possibility of Dow 6000, which we saw showing compelling evidence and behind the reasons for his prediction. On page 201, he warned that the collapse of the real estate bubble and stock market would lead to the poor effect that, that we see now, opposite to that seen during a rising stock and real estate market. Remember, most Americans perceive their, their wealth and hold the greatest amount of their wealth in home equity. On page 222, he warned of a lack of adequate regulatory authority over the mortgage-backed securities market position, and, and that positioned it for a massive collapse, which we saw. On page 221, he warned of a mortgage-related derivatives meltdown resulting in losses in the trillions of dollars. There, he also predicted that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac would be bailed out by taxpayers, which we saw. On page 223, he warned that the banks would suffer as a result of the implosion of the mortgage-backed securities market, and that the implosion of the MBS market would lead to a massive sell-off in global stock markets, which we saw. He also warned that GM and GE would also be affected by the real estate implosion, and they certainly were. On that page, he also stated that real estate prices would decline by 35% on average and 50 to 60% in certain regions. Remember, he did all this several years in advance. In greater detail in his book, in another book he wrote in 2006, Cashing In on a Real Estate Bubble, on pages 67 and 68, he stated that he would estimate at its bottom the deflation of the housing bubble will cause a 35% correction for the average home. I believe that Mike quoted statistics to me earlier telling me that it turned out to be 33% or very close to his prediction. And that hot spots such as Las Vegas, Northern California, Southern California, and South Florida, home prices could plummet by 50 to 60% of their peak values. They certainly did. In that book, he also documents his advice to readers to short mortgage industry-related stocks, institutions, banks, and home builders, and I'm sure that those of his readers who paid attention to him probably did well. There are many other successful forecasts to Mike Stathis's credit, which are well-documented and easily verified in his books and other publications, but I have not mentioned these as an advertisement for Mike. Rather, they serve as an assurance that when he criticizes his own industry for either their apparent dishonesty or their gross incompetence, he himself is certainly competent and has every right to make such criticism. There are many other things in Mike's, book, in Mike's books which one may be quite surprised to find in any book written by a financial industry insider. For instance, in America's Financial Apocalypse, Mike explains how America in 2006 shared many similarities to pre-Depression America before the 1929 crash, right? He explained how corporate America is destroying the middle class. He detailed America's two-decade period of declining living standards, and, and we've seen that yeah, you know, that, those same complaints come from what, what the media considers to be the extremist right, the extremist right wing. But Mike is hardly a member of the extremist right wing. And, and he explained how the SEC permits 
legalized insider trading by corporations. He proved how the economy under Bush was a disaster and was set to implode. All these things are in his book way before they happened. He explained how the SEC is useless and serves as a with Wall Street. How the SEC is useless and serves as a partner in crime with Wall Street. He explained how the dollar is backed by oil and how the Saudis, because of that, have a huge amount of control over the fate of the U.S. economy. He predicted that most baby boomers would never be able to retire due to the stock market collapse. I can tell you that the Walmart here is, in fact, loaded with senior citizen employees. Many of these explanations and assertions by a financial insider are, in my purview, career killers by themselves. Mike has written several books besides America's Financial Apocalypse and Cashing in on a Real Estate Bubble, which were both written in 2006. He's written other books such as America's Healthcare Solution, An Investment in Your Future, The Wall Street Investment Bible, and The Startup Bible, Company Bible for Entrepreneurs. There will be links to his website and his books where there are many informative previews when this podcast is posted at Christagenia. When Mike's book was rejected, when America's financial apocalypse was rejected by publishers, when the media shut him out, and when, his, and when even his own industry did not want to hear him, Mike wanted to find out why, and that search is what has led him to where he is today, fully understanding that world Jewry has commandeered and corrupted the entire global economic system. Mike has even been ignored by much of the so-called alternative media, clowns like Alex Jones and Jeff Rents and a host of others, mostly because their own financial interests clearly conflict with any genuine care for the truth. The least likely person to become an anti-Semite, he is simply a product of society, having formulated his own opinions by observing and investigating the events leading to his own fate. With his proven track record, when everyone should want to hear what he has to say, nobody wants to hear from him at all. Today, having his own investment analysis firm and several other books and investment-related publications, Mike currently offers a $100,000 reward to anyone who could show that another financial analyst has as good a proven track record forecasting the present economic collapse. To date, there have been no claimants. Mike, welcome to Christagenian. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. By the way, I don't know if it came out. It was a hundred thousand dollar award, not a hundred dollar. Oh, I thought I said a hundred thousand dollar. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Well, maybe did I maybe didn't hear? Yeah. Well, well, I haven't had an opportunity to read your whole book, America's Financial Class, but it seems to cover an awful lot of ground in laying out exactly how and why we have arrived at these present economic conditions today. It, it outlines an American economic history for the entire past century up to its seemingly inevitable conclusions, but the conclusions are only only seem to be inevitable because you honestly assess the conditions which led to them. That nobody else in financial markets that, that I've ever seen seems to have done this, and, and I was at one time a long-time reader of the Wall Street Journal and Investor's Business Daily. How did you transcend the general perceptions of the average financial analyst in order to realize the true and present dangers uh, 
to our real economy that, that Wall Street posed? And, and what motivated you to write this book in the first place? Well, uh, you know, the first thing to keep in mind is that I was just a, uh, one guy on a computer, didn't have any access to any other resources that anyone else, uh, uh, you know, would have. And uh, I wasn't even uh, focusing on the public markets at the time. I was merely, um, I, was, I was focused in the venture capital world at that time, but I was also um, writing a monthly newsletter to some select clients, mainly institutions. Um, so it was kind of a, a hobby. And I kept seeing a recurring theme. I kept uh, coming across a lot of issues. And so I decided to cease publication of that newsletter um, probably in 2005, I've already done a lot of research and began uh, writing America's Financial Apocalypse because I was certain that we were headed for a depression. And I wanted to warn people because, you know, I still, I still to this day have the memory of the devastation that was created by the dot-com charade. And uh, that upset me a lot. You know, I sat there and saw uh, millions of Americans uh, many of which who were uh, retirees lose everything. You know, we, we, we people people after a few years forgot about the dot com collapse. You know, we're talking about uh, you know trillions of dollars that was lost. And uh, I saw something much bigger, uh, much larger magnitude, and I wanted to warn people about that. Uh, because I, you know, that's one of the reasons why I left Wall Street is because of the whole dot-com charade. I was disgusted uh, when I truly saw the criminal nature of Wall Street. I didn't want to have, I didn't want to have any part of that industry. I wanted to completely get away from them because I was disgusted. So that was the venture that I set out to do, and uh, you know, I didn't create that book like everyone else does when they write financial books. They want to market themselves and put their website, you know, um, buy gold, you buy gold for me, invest with me. If you look at all of these investment books, every single one of them, that's what their purpose is. At that time, I didn't even have the website, the ABA research, uh, because I was not dealing with the retail public at all. I only began that website in uh, spring of 2009, after I had been essentially banned from the entire Internet. And that was even shocking to me. Um, that was after going through a period of, of, of contacting hundreds, if not thousands, of producers, uh, editors, journalists, and so forth, and not receiving any interest. Um, and I find myself being banned on the Internet. And, of course, in the early stages, I, I wasn't quite sure why. But then I came to realize, uh, and I'm still doing this research, but I came to realize that it all came down to everyone out there, every website, every person, they're all criminals. They're all chasing the dollar. So, in other words, on these websites, 
most of most of these people are the um, they're the antagonists of the typical Wall Street crowd. You know, they're the they're the perpetual doomers, and so they want to pump gold. And so if you're not talking about how gold is going to go to the moon, they don't want to hear from you, especially if you're credible, because they're getting paid either by gold dealers directly, or they're selling gold, or they're making money off of Google ads. And, you know, so the people, if they realize this, they should, they should be very upset, because everywhere you turn, you see nothing but profiteers and criminals. And, they, and these guys have masqueraded themselves as heroes and saviors. They're on your side. You know, they're telling you that the Federal Reserve is criminal. All these guys, you know, yet they never say, you know what, the Jewish Federal Reserve, Jewish Wall Street, you see. It's the Glenn Becks of the world, the Max Todgers of the world. All these guys, they're scamming people. They're pumping gold. They're making money pumping gold, you see, because, they, you know, this is what is disturbing to me. I have not found a single source in all of my years of looking. And you, you can imagine that, you know, I know where to look, and I spent a lot of time looking. I haven't found a single source that's uh, uh, honest and credible. They all have their agendas. All they care about is putting money in their pockets. They don't care about the truth. They don't care about anybody. And, and by the way, online, you're not going to find many people of credibility. 99% of these individuals are not even financial professionals. And the ones that are, are, are just rookies. They're green. They're not even, they don't even work for, for major Wall Street firms, never have. This is another thing people don't realize. <laughs> Anybody, a garbage man can become a registered investment advisor. That's basically where, uh, you don't work for a Wall Street firm. You basically open your own shop and, uh, you bring in money and, you know, you have it managed. Anybody can do that, and that's what you see online. You will never, ever hear an individual that works at a major Wall Street firm uh, preach all these myths about gold that you hear online. I've never seen it, and it won't happen because Wall Street knows that gold is not a hedge against inflation, uh, um, and they know the dollar is not going to zero. I mean, this is just baloney. So... The difficulty um, I think that some of these people see about me is that I've got a great track record. I'm credible. Uh, I don't have a bias. I'm not selling gold. I'm a guy that predicted gold to soar. I put it in my book. But at the same time, when gold soared due to a lot of um, pumping by the media, I said, wait a second. You better be very careful that you're be buying gold now. And you certainly don't want to buy physical gold because people tend not to have an exit strategy, you see. But the gold pumpers, they don't make money if you buy the gold ETF. They only make money by getting you to buy physical gold, because either they're selling the physical gold or they are being paid by gold dealers to get you to buy it through them. So, I mean, we can go well, well, over that a little bit later. Right, right. I, I don't I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say we've done a little ahead where I hope to be, but that's okay. It's it's we could talk about gold first. All of the right wing, like Republic Radio, Oracle Broadcasting, all of the so-called right wing, right wing alternative media outlets. Of course, Jeff Rance. Of course, Alex Jones. They all sell gold. That's all they hawk is gold. 
and, and they try to scare people up to buy gold. And, and it seems to me that the, the um, well, well, we talked about the threats of China dumping treasury bills and, and the, the, um, the, the Whitney, the, the um, Whitney woman that, that has tried to discredit the municipal bonds, and they're all traditional safe havens for investors. And have they scared people into buying gold so that that, that would drive up the gold markets, the, the gold well, price? You know, before I directly address that, I wanted to say that, you know, it's funny that um, as time has gone on since I released uh, these books and my track record has um, become even more accurate as, as my forecasts have, have come to fruition. It's it's funny that I've gotten less interest by the media. That is to say, prior to the collapse, I did numerous interviews, and you know, all of these people that you hear about now, you know, they get all the media coverage. Most of these people, they weren't even around. They surfaced after this stuff, and so so why is that specifically? on the radio. Well, because all these radio shows are getting paid by gold dealers, you see. Uh, a, a huge portion of the funding of the radio shows, depending upon how, how large they are, and the smaller ones are, are getting an enormous amount of funding, percentage-wise, from gold dealers. And so they, they don't want to hear from anybody unless they pump gold. This is criminal. This is absolutely criminal. And people need to know about this. Um, and that's, that's just, that's exactly the reason why Alex Jones, who scheduled me, uh, for an interview, and I was actually the very first real expert that he was going to have on his show, um, he kept delaying the interview, and then finally didn't hear from him, and I figured out the reason why was because after he got through to the end of my book, which is quite long, uh, it talks about the investment strategies. And I basically say, first thing is, you know, you don't want to buy physical gold. Second thing, you want to trade gold that's very volatile. Alex Jones saw that and said, whoa, we don't want this guy because this is how we make most of our money. Because, of course, Ted Anderson, who's the president of GCN Network, he's also the president of Midas Resources. You'll notice that Midas Resources is the only gold company that Alex Jones on his websites has. And I heard Ted Jones going on this show, you know, spewing off all kinds of baloney, all kinds of uh, false economic data and so forth. Uh, I heard him try to sell gold coins at huge markups above the spot, you know, because his, Alex Jones' his, his listeners are very naive. They don't know what's going on. These are not investors. So, you know, I wanted to make that point clear. Um, as, as my track record has become you know, has singled me out even more, I've gotten even less interest. And these people, honest to God, these people all out there, they are all deceitful. They're all lying. All they care about is lining their pockets. They are no better. They're no better than Wall Street. In fact, I could argue that they're worse than Wall Street because people, uh, I think, generally are aware that Wall Street, you know, is has their own game and they have a lot of criminal activity and they need to watch out. But they don't they don't think the same about the media. T V guys, the radio guys. The T V guys and radio guys after Wall Street 
defrauded investors. The TV and radio guys came in, and they did their own game, defrauding investors, with all this gold blowing and all this dollars going to zero and so forth. So they're more sneaky about it. Um, so I could argue that they're actually worse than Wall Street because they're, they're, they're sucking the last few uh, uh, drops of blood from investors after Wall Street took care of them. Now, you know, you, you, as far as um, you mentioned um, Meredith Whitney, um, you know, I think some people might say, well, you know what, it doesn't make sense. Why would if the media is primarily controlled, the financial media that is, by Wall Street, why would they permit Meredith Whitney to come in and all these other uh, doomsday people to come in and kind of rain on Wall Street's parade, right? Kind of doesn't make sense, does it? Because that's going to upset Wall Street, right? Wall Street pays for all the ads or most of the ads, right? Well, you have to understand that once everyone sees the problems, then the uh, the the doomers, the gold bugs, um, they start to um, provide a much larger percentage of the revenues for the media. And you know, to I guess acknowledge that, all you have to do is just look back and see. Uh, look at Goldline, right? Goldline was paying one bet millions of dollars uh, to be a sponsor of, uh, of gold, push gold. All these neocon talking heads. Mark Levine, you know, so on and so forth. So as as things have turned, uh, the forces behind gold have jettisoned a huge amount of money to the media. In addition to that, don't think that Wall Street is not involved in gold because they are. Um, you know, Wall Street doesn't sell gold per se typically to investors as a typical investment, they'll sell the gold securities. But, of course, Wall Street banks do a lot of gold buying and selling for their own inventory and for institutional funds. So the more that gold gets pumped up in price, well, the more they make. So it's, so it's kind of a complicated situation um, because certainly Wall Street uh, does not, would not want uh, people to come and bash municipal bonds because Wall Street is the uh, uh, player in municipal bonds. That's how Meredith Whitney became involved because she was a Wall Street person. She left Wall Street, uh, started her own firm, and of course she was already a uh, part of the media club uh, because she had uh, been on uh, as a commentator on some of these uh, shows like CNBC, and and of course. Uh, she's Jewish. Now, if you're Jewish, then you have an almost automatic entry into the media. Um, that's why all of these so-called financial experts that you will see on TV almost always are Jewish. And, you know, I'm not saying that every single one is, but if you look at the percentage of airtime, in other words, they're going to have people that aren't Jewish, but look at who they're covering the most. They're almost always Jews. As a matter of fact, I cannot think of a single exception up to that. Um, you can just go down the list. Uh, and also, I actually added on my site, there's an introduction, which is not typically up, but if they go on the site right now, 
There's about a five-minute introduction, a flash intro, talks about the media. I, 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 there's a point in there that shows um, all of these uh, um, financial media and so-called experts, probably about 20 of them, and listing their names, and every single one of them is Jewish. Well, well, right. I read the Wall Street Journal and IBD for years, and, and um, until I got so disgusted with it in the late '90s that I stopped reading it. And it, 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 all the experts they ever quoted were Jewish. Every field, no matter, it didn't have to be finance. In those any publications field. are those publications are garbage. I never read that stuff when I was on Wall Street. It's a bunch of trash. It's a bunch of garbage. And let me tell you, the whole financial media, in my opinion. Is guilty of massive fraud. Um, let, me give you, let me just give you one simple example how the financial media engages in securities fraud. They obviously they know ahead of time who they're going to interview, and so when they have an analyst or fund manager, um, they already know what he's going to talk about in general without even asking him. All they have to do is look at his fund uh, top ten holdings. But, of course, they're going to ask him what he likes. They're going to know ahead of time. So what do you think they do? They can contact their buddies and tell them uh, uh, to, get, to get in ahead of the stock. In addition to that, if a fund manager comes on and, and, and counts the stock, the, the SEC does not ever even check whether that fund manager unloads the stock after he pumped it up on air. Because, you see, all of these individuals who have no conscience and just care about lining their pockets, they're going to do everything they can to get on TV because they know that is the portal to the sheep, okay? If you watch CNBC, Fox Business News, you're a sucker. You're a complete sucker. I'm telling you this right now. There's no doubt about that. These individuals are going to do what they can. They're going to play by the rules. So they can market themselves, they can manipulate securities. It happens every single day. I see it on print as well. Fortune Magazine, Fortune.com, these guys are involved in all kinds of manipulation. I don't have time to get into it, but believe me, I've studied these things. I've contacted the SEC about it, too. Um, but, you know, the SEC is, is useless. They're actually partners in crime with Wall Street. And it's unfortunate that most of the employees of the SEC, they're oblivious. They don't even realize that they're incompetent. And because it's not them, it's the guys at the top of the SEC running the show. They're the ones that have designed that agency um, to be incompetent and to um, inundate the employees with so much bureaucracy that nothing gets done, or to assign major cases of fraud to a bunch of amateurs. I've seen it over and over again. As a matter of fact, that happened to me on the Washington Mutual uh, complaint that I filed. It was assigned to a couple of rookie attorneys out in San Francisco. <laughs> you know, you could, I could tell by talking to them. These guys are green. They didn't know what they were doing. And to be honest with you, I don't even think the top people at the SEC uh, have a clue. I think, you know, Jim Cramer, the guy's a clown. He's, he's wrong more than he's right, but the one thing that he's been right about is that he said that the SEC are a bunch of morons. 
You, you have you you um blew the whistle on Washington Mutual. I mean, I mean, you understood what was going on there long before it busted, right? Do you want to talk about Washington Mutual? Well, if you look at some of my articles that I wrote, I actually say you better pull your money out of Washington Mutual, okay? Because because they're probably the next one uh, to get bought out. And I said I wrote that in, 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 two weeks before. I warned on two occasions about that actually. <laughs> but that doesn't mean in other words, I didn't say that that they that they have problems, you know, that they have massive I said that they're probably gonna get bought out, which implied I didn't say it uh implicit, explicitly, but that implied that, that they were gonna get bought out. Two different things, right? Because if you look at for instance Bear Stearns, uh Lehman Brothers, those situations didn't have to happen. The Bear Stearns especially, um, you know, <laughs> all they needed was was some short-term funding. You know, the exact same thing that was provided to all the other banks, right? So Washington Mutual was not going to get that funding because they weren't part of the banking cartel. They were the, the savings and loan. They weren't part of the group that owned the Fed, you see. Um, but, but Washington Mutual was not insolvent. I knew that immediately. Immediately when they received, I began... Um, uh, writing the complaint to the SEC, I knew for a fact that they were not insolvent. And as it turns out, um, it's been reported in court documents because, of course, there's been lawsuits between Washington Mutual and J.P. Morgan. It was reported, I believe, last year. It was admitted by J.P. Morgan that Washington Mutual was not insolvent. Okay. So if they were not insolvent, then shouldn't that bankruptcy or that seizure, shouldn't that be reversed? Because that was the sole reason for the seizure. It should be reversed. The shareholders should have should, should receive uh, their funds back, and uh, there should be a huge criminal investigation. So I knew all that was going on. I also uh, implicated massive insider trading by several uh, banks and hedge funds. And as we know now, uh, there is an insider trading uh, lawsuit. Now, you know, the SEC doesn't give me any credit. They certainly don't want to give me any whistleblower um, monetary award. They don't want to now acknowledge anything. Uh, you know, this this is just, uh, and, and as, I, as I mentioned to you, and there's people that uh, know me and that read my, read from my website, no, uh, a few weeks after I, I uh, uh, forwarded that complaint to the SEC, I was interrogated by federal agents to intimidate me, to shut me up. And as a result of that, I didn't even release that complaint until a year later because I wanted the, um, the smoke to blow away. Well, that's how they operate. In, in your essay, Evidence Banks Have Bought Off Washington, you talk about the evils of lobbyist control of government. And, and everyone here would agree with that and, and applaud that. But you have taken your analysis a step further in professing that the lobbyists also create many of the seemingly burdensome regulations that, that corporations use to, for, for things like such as to, to send jobs overseas. And, and lobbyists also create the climate for investors, to, to, for Wall Street to loot and pillage investors also. And it, it seems to me that Wall Street, it, with, with control of the government through the lobbyists and, and control of the media because they own it and they own its investments, that they basically are, are able to loot and pillage the entire nation. 
that's, that's, what, that, that's what we've been see we've seen that going on the last uh, I don't know how many years twenty years. That, that, that's 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 a topic that I covered in the, in the apocalypse book. That was one of the, one of the problems. And that's one of the solutions for this country is to get rid of all lobbyist activities. Um, I talked about that. You know, I talked about so many things in that book that are it's, it's like a crystal ball. I was talking about the wealth and income disparity, all these things, way back before anybody had a clue uh, how the government manipulated all the numbers, everything. But you know, the regulatory uh, situation, of course, I, I talked about that extensively. But um, um, you know, it's it's it is kind of a hypocrisy because they pretend like they don't want the regulations. They use it as an excuse. You got Jeffrey I know who comes on TV and he'll complain. You know, well, gosh, we want to, we'd love to create jobs for, for for people in America to work at GE, but we've got too many regulatory hurdles. Well, these are the same individuals who are responsible for having those regulations passed. Because we all know who is responsible for getting the laws passed in this country. The lobbyists paid off by the industries, right? Well, well, absolutely. A lot of those laws, it's very clear that a lot of those laws, like the Patriot Act, they were made up long in advance. And as soon as there was an event that that they could use to to get that passed, it it just appeared. Thousands of pages just appeared out of nowhere. See, I think that... I think that, you know, someone said, well, why would they, why would they want to have regu- regulations passed that would make it more costly for U.S. companies to do business domestically? Well, you know, a lot of those regulations are, are needed. Um, um, the EPA is needed. OSHA regulations are needed. Um, I think that, uh, they did so in order to, um, um, once again, have an excuse to, to send jobs overseas because if you employ Americans in America, then as a large company, you're going to have to pay for pension costs. You're going to have to pay for health care costs. And specifically with pension costs, you say, well, why would they have to pay? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, these executives, they have to provide a certain amount of, of Retirement uh, compensation to their employees so that they can beef up their own plans. You see, so if they got rid of the pension plan for the employees, then they wouldn't have their one hundred million dollar golden parachute. You see, they wouldn't have their 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 retirement plan. And as as well, at some point, if they decided to uh, get rid of health care for employees, then you would hear a lot of outrage, and they would that would be bad for them. So the solution was to, to create uh, an excuse to send jobs overseas. Now, the flip side of that is that we don't get rid of the EPA and OSHA. We just make sure our trading partners also have those same standards. But corporate America knew that, that you, know, you could send jobs overseas to developing nations where there's, there's no uh, a type of, of, of safety uh, protections for employees. And you know, essentially produce uh, uh, these goods at a much lower cost. And as a result, you're seeing, uh, for instance, in China, uh, many areas have very high rates of cancer due to uh, you know uh, um, chronic exposure to toxic chemicals. 
Well, we also read about heavy, heavy pollution in China. Heavy pollution, heavy water pollution, heavy yeah. air pollution. Well, that they have shut down auto auto traffic for the Olympics two weeks ahead of time or something. Well, not, not just that. That's where you may have heard about these uh, green algae islands. Yes. They had, they, had a, they, had a, they had an algae mass about maybe two years ago, two or three years ago, um, that was about the size of Hong Kong off the coast of China. And that's due to uh, the toxic chemicals that spill over into the into the rivers, into the ocean. And that, of course, is due to uh, the production facilities for electronic components, but it's also due to, perhaps even more so, the breakdown of those components. Because, you know, this is another scan, by the way. All these, um, you know, all these organizations, these companies, of course, most of them are nonprofit. They tell you, you know, come and recycle your computer monitor or your cell phone or what have you. You know, we're, we're going to make sure it's disposed and environmentally friendly. Yeah, sure, it's environmentally friendly for America. Because what they do is they put it on a big barge and they send it to China. And so they have people there who are sitting there disassembling all this stuff and stripping out, you know, the good, the good parts. <laughs> that, you know, you can just, I'm sure you can go on YouTube and find videos of it. Uh, this is, this is the reality. And so, so, so don't the Chinese people think that, that, that don't they understand that they're committing suicide but by having well, all well, of the manufacturing they, jobs? They, I mean, that's what they're doing, they right? They see this now. They're starting to see it now. And they're starting to complain now. But, you know, you have to understand that when you have people, because these, these facilities are not located, you know, in center city Shanghai. They're located in, uh, you know, some poor regions. And so people, of course, welcome the jobs. And they don't think about you know, could this be hazardous? You know, these people are not educated um, in those regions, but they're starting to see it now. They're starting to see the the the, uh, the air pollution. They're starting to notice that um, you know, numerous members of their family have died at early age of cancer, and this is causing some problems. And, and this, of course, uh, this is going to be one of the problems China faces over the next ten to twenty years. A huge contingency. Uh, financial contingency due to uh, their their negligence of environmental um, um, controls. It's going to be a huge problem, believe me. Well, well, it should be. And the people that should really be discredited over the moving of industry to China is the entire green movement in the United States and Europe. But because they <laughs> haven't paid any attention at all or, or advertised that, that they paid any attention at all to what's going on and, and the amount of pollution that, that's, that, that's being passed into our, our ecosystem in the East, in, in China and India. You know, of course, the whole green movement is just another scam. You know, you've got, it, it's just like everything else. You've got the guys at the top who use propaganda to fool the sheep. And so the sheep actually, you know, they think that they're doing something of a worthy cause. And so the, the guys at the top get the sheep to work for them, you know. And so you've got all these people out there who, uh, you know, they think that they're uh, doing the right thing. And in reality, it's all about big money. And, you know, it's kind of funny because I remember uh, a few years ago, people were talking about, yeah, you know, we need to move to renewable energy, you know, um, uh, you know, like electric power and, and, and solar and, and uh, nuclear power. 
And I'm sitting here saying, excuse me, nuclear power is not renewable energy. It's very dangerous. It's very hazardous. You can't get rid of these, these, these spent uh, nuclear rods. And, of course, you see the situation in Japan. Um, and, of course, ele- electric power is, you know, the, the, the vast majority of electricity uh, is created through uh, coal, coal-burning plants, right? So, you know, it's, you know, it, once again, whenever you see any type of large movement, large movements don't, don't appear for no reason. They're always but backed right. by big money. Well, well, absolutely. It's absolutely clear that to have that type of financing to push the the, um, the agenda that they pushed, they have to have the backing of the corporations. And and I would ask you, so it could be fairly stated that the corporations purposely rigged globalization, they rigged the excessive regulation here, and they've created the, the green movement, and they've created the the, um, the inability of America to compete in the globalized marketplace simply because they don't want America to compete in the globalized marketplace. And and then they go to the Orient, and, and they don't care what they pollute, what they destroy, as long as they get their cheap products made to sell to um, silly Americans. Well, I think that, yeah, I, I think maybe I would probably state it as, I mean, I think they want – they want Americans to, to compete, but not as workers. They want us to, in other words, they want us to compete as consumers. You see, the whole globalization um, theme was, you know, the whole mantra behind that was, you know, we're going to, it's going to be able to, uh, it will enable us to create um, lower cost goods and services for consumers. Well, the only problem behind that is that it was, it was designed to send jobs to developing nations where they would not have a concern for public safety and the environment. And that would create cheaper goods and services for U.S. consumers who were um, experiencing a, a chronic period of diminished living standards. But the problem is, is that, you know, you have to have ultimately good, stable jobs in order, to be, in order to be good consumers. And, you know, the the era of the American consumer is pretty much gone. And so, you know, things are, you know, as time goes on, of course, I think most people will think things are improving. There will be kind of a superficial improvement. But the underlying surface, you won't see an improvement. As a matter of fact, what we're going to see is more and more jobs going overseas because corporate America realizes that their new consumer base is no longer Americans. It's the two and a half billion Asians. And so what you're going to see is, you know, you can't, you can't um, infiltrate a nation with foreign products um, without importing jobs there, right? Eventually, you have to um, um, provide a, a large amount of jobs because it becomes a political issue because, uh, you know, similar to what's happened in this country with the, the um, Japanese auto industry kind of taking over, 
Well, you know, the politicians eventually, you know, kind of pressure Japan to send, you know, a lot of the manufacturing operations to America, right? And you're going to see the same thing with uh, uh, virtually all industries. They're going to go overseas. I mean, if you, if you think it's bad now, you know, come back and, and revisit this in 20 years. It's going to be pretty devastating. Well, what we understand is it's probably not ever going to be an economic recovery here. We're never going to see 1950s, 1960s America again. What we, well, I can we, tell you, the, 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 just, just the financial crisis of 2008, just that alone has permanently lowered U.S. GDP. Permanently. We have already faced a couple of notches um, of living standard diminishment. Not coming back, and um, it's probably going to get worse depending upon, you know, your your income level and, and you know various other uh, uh, variables. Uh, but there's there's no doubt about that. And you know when you when you look at Europe, it's a much worse situation. You know, Europe is uh, Europe is going to be facing you know at least a decade of deflation, probably many parts two decades. Europe is in deep trouble, not just now, but, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. And, uh, you know, I predicted uh, several years ago that the year would not, not last. And it looks like, well, the, the globalists, they're going to do everything they can to keep it um, um, unified. But I think that it's the euro, the, the European Union is going to be, very different um, over the next 10 years. Well, well, I think that the euro was never a viable currency because you can't force such disparate peoples to live in the same standard of living, and, and it just doesn't work. You can't force yeah. the same generic currency over people so different as, as the the, um, the Estonians, the Germans, the, the, the English, and, and the Greeks, yeah. and, and the Spaniards. It just can't happen. When you have the same currency, you have to have the same culture. You have to have the same economic infrastructure. You know, you have, you, you just can't, you know, you, you have to destroy sovereignty. Um, and that's something that eventually you're going to see a societal protest. Unfortunately for Europeans, um, we've had this economic situation which has, uh, uh, catalyzed uh, their anger. I think, in other words, I think a lot of Europeans are probably unhappy about a lot of the things going on. You know, more and more they're starting to have to accept universal European law. You know, each year they make that more definitive. And I think this has kind of pushed them over the edge. Um, it's kind of similar to some of these Tea Party people that are frustrated and they know something is wrong, but they're not consciously sure. It's a subconscious thing. So I think this is, you know, we're seeing now a struggle between the globalists and the people in Europe. Unfortunately, we're not seeing that struggle in America. 
Well, well, I think we will see that struggle in America, I hope, as, as things get worse, except that the Occupy Wall Street movement is basically Bolshevik in nature, and Bolshevism is not the answer. You, you've stated on your website that the United States has not enjoyed a real free market system for decades. My, my own assertion would be that its end became evident in 1913. Well, when do you think that the free market system really ended in this country? Yeah, I, I really couldn't say for sure. I'm not an um, economic historian. Um, I, I really, I don't know, but I, I would say that I think probably best to look at, you know, when we started to see the largest relative change or deviation. And I would say that probably began in the 80s with the Reagan era when, uh, you know, you started that wave of deregulation. Um, you know, so in other words, you know, I guess one could argue that we haven't had a free market economy for a century, right? But at some point, you have to kind of look at it relatively speaking in terms of when, uh, that free market, uh, vaporized the most quickly, right? So I think that the 80s, uh, was, you know, on was the period that it really, really escaped us. Um, but, yeah, you know, I mean, you could argue that we haven't had a free market economy for, for many decades. Well, well, I, I couldn't, your, I couldn't in, pinpoint that. In your paper on the proof that, that, that um, the banks bought off Washington, you effectively argued that deregulation does precisely the opposite of what we're told that it does. It actually decreases competition and raises prices. And, of course, the media is still arguing the opposite even though the media itself is probably the best example of, of, you know, which is contrary to their own arguments. Well, you know, I wouldn't say that um, the deregulation uh, necessarily always results in that outcome. I would just say that it has. And, you know, the media, I mean, come on, the media, the media is, these guys are the establishment, you know. When the media wants to know what's going on with the economy, they go to the establishment economists, right? The cheerleaders and morons and liars who are connected with Washington. And, and by the way, before I continue with that, I wanted to say that you know, if you look at these economists, you have to understand that these guys, they are Washington cheerleaders. Why? Well, if you're, if you're an economist, chances are you're connected with academia, right? Economists, they can't get employed elsewhere. So it's either Wall Street or academia. So if you're connected with academia and you're an economist, you've got to get research grants. You know, these guys that sit on uh, government committees and all these things. So they have to play by the rules. That's why you have this boys club. They don't get the research grants. They don't play by the rules. Well, they don't get tenure, you see. But, but you know, getting back to your original uh, point, you know, the, the once again, I'm not saying that deregulation necessarily always uh, uh, creates less competition, but it's just that it has. In other words, if you look at the late 80s when the airline industry was deregulated, well, we've seen what's happened. Before the deregulation, we had over 200 airlines in this country. How many do we have now? Four, five, right? And each of those are are facing the potential of bankruptcy, (laughs) you know? So, so if you, you know, you look at another issue, 
the point of the media, you know, the media uh, was was essentially deregulated such that uh, it permitted uh, uh, conglomerates to form. And we see what's happened, see what's happened to the media. It's, it's now exclusively controlled by the government and the corporations. Um, you know, another example, a more recent example of deregulation, how it's destroyed competition and, and caused higher prices, is the energy industry. Deregulation of the energy industry began um, shortly after the Enron debacle, right, in 2001-2002. And now that was more of a statewide deregulation because, you know, the, the, uh, the states pretty much control uh, the electricity. Uh, um, so I don't know how many states deregulated, but I would say by now the majority and I think, you know, every every instance that I've seen, what has happened is that energy prices have gotten higher. Why? Because it has it has stifled competition. So I think that the trend that we're seeing here is that deregulation of industries that are vital to consumers is a is a big mistake. In other words, you you need regulation. You need uh, good regulation for uh, mass transit industry. You need it for the energy industry. You need it for the healthcare industry. Um, you know, I think that deregulation can be a good thing for consumer markets. You know, let's say, for instance, you know, consumer electronics, things of that nature. But when you deregulate vital necessities that consumers require, can't go without then you're going to see industry collusion and price gouging because these guys know. They know that you have to have these, these services. A good example is if you look at, if you've ever gotten an insurance quote, one of the first questions they're going to ask you is, well, how much are you currently paying? Or who are you with? Well, why do you think they ask that? Well, of course they ask that because if you're paying $1,000 a year, then they're going to quote you $995 a year. So that's a form of kind of a, um, it's a form of industry collision or a price gouging because they're kind of participating in, in raising the prices without, you know, going to those, to their competitors. They're kind of keeping the prices high instead of giving you their best rate. They're checking to see what the competition is doing. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's, you know, that's not the way that you do things. But, of course, the insurance industry, uh, they're just as criminal as Wall Street. Well, well it, it, it seems to me that reading your um, your articles on Bob Chapman, your articles on John Williams, whom we could talk about, your articles on Meg Whitney, that Wall Street is indeed directly manipulating the thoughts of people so that they could loot and, and, and kill it so that they could get these people to invest money where Wall Street or, or to spend money where Wall Street wants. And, and it, it's clear collusion between well, Wall Street Wall and the media. Street. It's not just Wall Street, though, because when you mention those individuals, um, you know, they're not Wall Street, and they're kind of, uh, you know, the opposite of Wall Street. 
So those individuals are involved with what they want to lie in their pockets. Um, and so, you know, so the question we need to ask is, so how does, how does it, how do we get to a point where the media is owned by Wall Street because they account for the vast majority of their revenues, at least the financial media, through advertisements and other types of endorsements and sponsorships? How do we get to that situation, um, in, to the, the point where the, the anti, supposedly anti Wall Street guys, the gold bugs, are getting media coverage, right? And once again, when you hit a period of, of, uh, whereby, you know, gold is being pumped, people are being worried, the gold industry pumps out a lot of money, and so they kind of buy off the media. The media is, is, has several, several priorities. You know, sometimes they, they will prioritize the needs of Washington. Sometimes they'll prioritize the needs of their, their buddies in Wall Street. And of course there we're talking about their Jewish ties, their loyal Jewish ties. And then sometimes they'll just say, you know what, we're going with the money this time. You see, so it's not, it, it is kind of complicated. Um, but they shuttle between those three things. I'll give you a perfect example. If, if I were to want to go on TV and talk about Israel and Palestine and so forth, that situation, the media is not going to let me. They're not going to be interested. Why? Because they don't want people to know. Our Jewish-controlled media does not want people to know the realities about uh, Israel and the the apartheid that's going on over there. So, yet, if Jimmy Carter wants to speak about it, he's going to be able to speak about it. The media's going to want to hear him. Now, why would they hear Jimmy Carter over me? Because Jimmy Carter is going to draw a big audience, and that means big money because of advertising revenues, right? So in that situation, they're willing to make that trade-off, you see. Right, and, and that would make sense. But, but it, it's um, Jimmy Carter might be the only one who's pro-Palestinian that, get, that gets a, um, a voice in the major media. I mean, there aren't too many, right? Well, of course, of course. Uh, that's exactly why I used him as an example, because you don't hear many people uh, talk about that. But yet, you know, Jimmy Carter, you know, he's, he's, he's been allowed to, to voice his opinion. Um, but is Jimmy Carter the only person in America who feels that way? Of course not. There's plenty of people who share his thoughts. But Jimmy Carter is virtually the only person who is allowed to speak. Why? Because he's the only person with a lot of exposure, right? A lot of, you know, huge name recognition. So the media, in that case, they choose to go with the money. So that's, that's I wanted to point that example out because you see that with the financial markets as well. You see, because once again, the, the financial media and the media in general, is is largely owned by Wall Street. However, they, it's not that they're always going to deliver the message of Wall Street. Now, they're, going to, they're most certainly going to deliver the message of Wall Street before a collapse. But once the collapse comes in, then they're going to kind of um, try to side with the people and have these extremists on there because at that point, the people are more willing to believe that Wall Street was lying to them, and so there must be a better solution out there. And the problem is that both of these 
solutions, the Wall Street guys and the uh, the Doomers, those are extremes. Both of them are, you know, are, are, are not uh, valid. You know, we, we live in a world of extremes because as a, as a population, we're not too intelligent. And extremes are much easier for people to understand, right? It's easy to know if it's night or day, white or black. But the Liberal or conservative, it's, it's, of course, capitalist yeah. or Bolshevik. Right, right. But, but it's more difficult for people to, 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 to um, understand that, you know, there's some truth, uh, you know, kind of in between. Each, each, each of those extremes has some truth to it. You have to be able to decipher, you know, the truth from each of those things. And people typically cannot do that. And, of course, that, you know, when we talk about that issue, then, of course, you know, you, you look at, you know, our educational system and so forth. All this stuff has been is intentionally engineered, you know, to, to make us uh, uh, more easy to fool. Well, well uh, I always thought that Jimmy Carter was thrown up there was the one, even though Jewish interests are not always unified, and, and they're off, they often are divided. They, they are rarely divided on the, in, on, on the issue of Palestine. I always thought Jimmy Carter was the only one that was thrown, that was allowed to go onto the media and talk about that issue so that they could portray him as an old nut and a hateful old man and, and, um, use him as their, their goy to kick around. But the, Aside from that, the listeners here are always amazed when someone from what we would consider to be mainstream society comes to an awakening concerning what is going on in the world and how the Jews and what they have done to our Christian society. And what were your first thoughts when you realized that it was a Jewish cabal that was manipulating not only the financial markets, but also the thoughts and the perception uh, of the society, mostly through the media, and, and what and and that in that manner they were able to perpetrate all of these financial crimes in the first place. To what extent have you found that these Jews are able to control our society? Well, you know, with regards to the financial markets, you know, I think that it's one thing to suspect something or to have it you know, a, a, a confident feeling about it. But when you see things that I've seen, and to the, to the extent that I've seen it, it's a different story. It's similar to me being banned by the media. You know, I always thought the media was incompetent, and it's that, but, you know, my perspective is, it's, it's hard to explain. Um, I see so clearly. Uh, once you have been there in a situation, um, you have, Zero doubt. Zero doubt. And, 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 and more importantly, I think that, I think the, the more important issue is not just the, um, the lies and, and the fraud by the media and Wall Street, but it's the collective efforts, their, um, um, their cooperative efforts. Each industry that's controlled by the Jewish mafia, they they help all of the other industries, and that's the key thing. That's the key thing to 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 keep in mind is that you know the financial media is always helping Wall Street. Um, you know, and, and, and Wall Street is going to uh, Washington 
getting laws passed, and uh, they're helping the, the corporate America. Of course, uh, you know, the Jews run corporate America as well. And uh, and by the way, I wanted to mention though that I remembered, you know, and I think I told you this, I don't want to take credit away from the person who actually created that video. I was consulted for that video. wasn't the actual creator. Um, um, the the uh, how, how the uh, Jewish mafia screwed you, but you know, I think that video really, in a 15 minute uh, summary, kind of pretty much says it all. Um, you know how all of you know how how this Jewish mafia is really controlling things because they do help each other, and it and it you know it's it's from the top down and the bottom up. You know they 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 control the positions in academia, and of course. The academia has connections with the think tanks, so you have, of course, virtually every single think tank is controlled by Jews. You just all you have to do is look them up and see, look at the list, and then they also influence social policy, they influence economic policy. They're also tied in with Wall Street. It's kind of like this whole media circle on the on the internet. All these guys, these gold bugs. If you look at their websites and see their blog role and who they follow, it's the same people. It's the same people. They're all in the same groups. And, and, and you can identify that same situation if you look at all these economists, you know, their affiliations. You know, they're on this committee. They're on this board of directors. If you really examine these things, you'll see uh, it's this, this whole network, this whole circle of friends. And that's the truly, truly powerful force is this, this cooperative effort that creates a synergistic effect. Right, they all go to the same synagogues and share the same information and eat at the same bar mitzvahs. It, it's, well, it's, it's not, I, I tell you, it's not necessarily, I mean, of course, it's not this whole, you know, this whole uh, mafia is not, of course, exclusively Jewish. They have their their inductees, you know, George Bush, Cheney, all these guys. Um, they're not exclusively Jewish, but the, but the power the power behind all of it, it's Jews. There's no doubt about it. They're the ones well, running the show. They're the ones running the entire show. Right, but they need Goyim, they need non-Jews out in front to legitimize their power and to legitimize right. their actions. But they not, not, only that, not, only, not only that, but also because, because the Jews like to hide. You see, they want to stay away from the spotlight as much as they can. Although, increasingly... You know they're becoming more bold, right? They are. They're, they're taking the they're taking the spotlight, but you know they they like to rule from the sidelines. You know, let me give you an example. I remember, uh, uh, I guess in 2008, um, you might you may have recalled uh, when people were asking um, Mike, Michael Bloomberg, uh, mayor of New York, if he was going to run for president. Remember that? Yes. And he was saying, "Oh no, no, I'm not going to run." Of course, he's not going to run. He's a Jew. The last thing they want is to have a Jewish president because then when we are giving all the support to Israel, people are going to start to wonder, hey, wait a second, what's going on here, right? I mean, why, why would you do that when you, can, when you can have a puppet president who's controlled by Jews, like Obama, like Bush, like all the you know, previous presidents for, for decades? So that's since how they, they run the show. Yeah, since JFK. So since after JFK. So, so that's how they run the show. They will, you know, you can look at the, the corporations as well. You, although there's several uh, Jewish uh, CEOs, um, 
if you look at the board of directors, that's really how you determine who's running the show. And, you know, just go through and look at the major corporations and look at the board of directors. Just go through and, and study it, and you're going to see. Uh, you know, it, it's just shocking to see 2% of the U.S. population. They, it, it's, it's, just, it's almost as if they're, they're 90% of the population. When you look at the positions, uh, they're in all the positions of power. You know, it's just shocking. Everywhere you look, the Supreme Court, you know, Congress, the think tanks, uh, uh, and Wall Street, the media. It's just, it's just shocking to me. Um, well, well I, I, I really believe that the only sweet, the, the only sweet presidents the Jews haven't had full control of since Woodrow Wilson, and they controlled him, and, and he was one of the worst, and, and the, our Coolidge, Hoover, and, and JFK. And I think that history might prove that out one day. And, and they've controlled every single president since Woodrow Wilson, which is when they had their Federal Reserve and a whole lot of other platforms, political platforms that they that are favorable to them. That's when they had all that installed: women's suffrage, um, the the, um, the graduated income tax, the Federal Reserve Board, the the, um, the prohibition so that they could take over the liquor industry in this country, which is what it enabled them to do, and, and a few other things. And I think they've controlled almost every president since then. Well, you know, and of course, you know, when we speak of this Jewish mafia, every single Jew is not guilty. And there's plenty of Jews that have suffered at the hands of, of, of the crimes of this Jewish mafia. However, um, I'm still waiting to see some Jews stand up and say, you know what, I'm sick of this stuff. I'm sick of you guys ruining my name, uh, uh, and, you know, and you know because you hear Jews and they'll say, "Well, you know, and I'm not part of this." And you know, there's plenty. Until I see that, until some of these Jews stand up and and denounce and the activities, gonna, uh, then 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 they're, then they're part of the problem. And of course, right. they, they they don't want to do it because of the backlash, the severe backlash they're going to face in the community, in their family. But you know what? When people point to Jews and they say, well, you know what? You're part of the problem. If you're, if you're Jewish and you don't agree with this stuff and you're not standing up and voicing your opinion, then don't talk to me about it. You know, don't, don't say that you're innocent. Well, well, absolutely. They don't. We don't see Jews protesting the pornography industry. We don't see Jews protesting the, the Federal Reserve banking system. It doesn't happen. They don't protest Wall Street. They they, they don't. Um, well, well, they don't protest the right places on Wall Street. When they do, it's this Occupy Wall Street. I think that uh, Occupy well, Wall Street is actually funded by some by some prominent organizations that have heavily Jewish boards. Well, that's what I was going to say is that the Jews are always infiltrated in every single movement, and they're also involved in Occupy Wall Street. And the reason why is because they're always there to make sure that the focus never comes on the Jews. Right. So there's some, there's some Jews there that are just as ticked off as everybody else, but, you know, if, if, if the focus becomes Jewish Wall Street, Jewish Washington, Jewish corporate America, Jewish media, then they're going to cry racist. And they need to say, you know what, you're right. 
I'm sick of it, and I want to, and I'm here protest, protesting because I want to make the point that I'm not part of them. I don't support them, and you don't, you don't see that. But they're in all these movements. They are there to kind of serve as a um, a um, moral detriment to the crowd. In other words, people will know that they're Jewish and will kind of say, well, you know, we're not going to say anything about Jews, right? Well, well, absolutely. Yeah, so that's, that's the problem. I want to see some of these Jewish people stand up and say, I don't like what's going on. My people are guilty of these crimes. I'm fed up with it because I don't want to have to sit here and live in a, in a, in a filthy name. And you don't ever see it. Well, well, right, you never see it, and if they really cared about defending themselves in a fair and just manner, they they would do that. And the most you ever see is you'll see, you know, you'll see some Jews that are, you know, they they protest against uh, the situation in in Palestine, and they'll they'll, they'll point to Zionists. You know, it's always the Zionists, Zionists, Zionists. That's a bunch of baloney. Okay? That's baloney. It's ultimately... The Jewish networking links the Zionist Jews with the non-Zionist Jews. So, you know, and and even some of the more vocal critics, and of course they're always called self-hating Jews, but even the more vocal critics, um, you know, uh, Ralph Nader and so forth, you know, they're never going to say, you know what, there is a criminal nature of the of 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 the of the, the, a large group of powerful Jews in this country, they're not going to admit that. They're going to claim that it's it's based upon money and it's just it's all all about money. And that's a bunch of baloney. There is a huge cooperative effort that spans multitudes. It spans the culture. It spans in some cases the religion. Although a lot of these individuals are not really religious. Um, it spans many things, and I have to believe that the number one factor, the number one powerful influence, is the Jewish networking. That's the source, you know, because you've got some of these criminals. Some of these criminals are not Zionists, right? Some of these if they guys, were, they'd all be in Palestine, right? Some of these, some of these guys, they don't care about Zionism. They care about money, and so you can't. And this, is, and this is also a thing that, that people are doing. They're always blaming the criminal activities of Jews on Zionist Jews, right? Even when some of these people talk about, you know, Alan Greenspan, the Zionist Jews. So the people have kind of, you know, because they're afraid to say Jews, you know, they feel they've gone enough to say Zionist Jews. But what does, what does Alan Greenspan have to do with Zionism? <laughs> you know? Not, so not much, except that they want that they they they, 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 they the Jews insist on on controlling the entire world, and he's part of that picture. But right, right, Zionism as we define it traditionally, no, he doesn't care a thing about it. So, so what I have to say to any Jews who may be listening is that you know uh, if you are if you are innocent, if you are not a participant of this mafia. If you do not like what's going on, you need to stand up and say so and be vocal about it. And if you do that, then, hey, you know, then you're just like everybody else. Everyone else is not part of this group. 
But until you don't, until you do that, then you can't expect to be treated differently or thought of as differently. Right. They have no you right can't. to complain about their criticism because they, they, they're not righteous at all. They're not righteous at all, and they don't protest. Like I said, that the pornography industry in this country is ninety-five percent controlled by Jews. Yeah. And and yeah. a whole lot of other disgusting industries and 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 movements. All of the sexual revolutions, the sexual perversion, the the, um, the women's feminist revolutions, which have destroyed our families. That the the, um, the social revolutions of the nineteen fifties and sixties. That they've all been orchestrated and led by Jews, and they've all been a great detriment to Christian society. That the filth that they that they that they spew out of the movies and Hollywood and the television and the sitcoms. All of this, and of course, all of this, all these are all components of the ultimate goal, and that is the removal of individuality, the removal of sovereignty, um, the destruction of of the family unit, all of these things to weaken society, right, which, they, which they're doing throughout the Western world. Meanwhile, these same individuals, the vast majority which are Jewish, who are determining these things for us, who are determining these policies, who are telling us that we need to have multiculturalism, who are telling us that, that we need gay rights, that, that women need to go in the workplace and... Uh, and abandon their role as a as a as a uh, a, uh, a caregiver and so forth. They don't have these same policies in Israel. You know, Israel doesn't have multiculturalism. <laughs> you know, so it, it, and it's obvious because they want they understand that a a homogenous group with common a common foundation, a common culture. That's the, that's the strength of the group. The Asians know this. This is why in Japan, you did not see any looting during that catastrophe. You saw no looting whatsoever. And then you go back, you know, uh, eight years ago or so in Hurricane Katrina, you had all kinds of looting going on. Why? Because look at our society. We're, we're a bunch of heathens. There's no, there's no values. People have no respect. There's no morals. They have no dignity. They they have no shame. They don't care. And of course, this has been created by uh, the mass media, Hollywood, uh, the music industry. All of these things that are putting subliminal messages into people's minds to just do whatever they want. Nothing matters. And you know, this has got to stop. It's, it's a complete destruction. Of our society, of our nation. But, well, that's the protocols of Zion and, and the Communist Manifesto and other Jewish documents and Jewish um, purposes that are in action. And, and that's why they've pushed that in our media. That's why they, they, they've taken control of our banking system is to destroy white Christian society. I mean, there are very deep and old historical reasons and a very deep and old historical struggle, which is culminating in this age. And, and there will be a backlash, and, and I believe that it's coming. And um, it, it's maybe we could talk about that some other night, but uh, that that is the focus of most of my work at Christagenia. 
I have whole entire series of podcasts on, on the French Revolution and the forces behind it, the social revolutions of 19th century Europe, the, the, the Federal Reserve, the, the, um, the build-up to World War II, the destruction of Christian Germany, and the destruction of Tsarist Christian Russia, all at the hands of the same cabal. And now, with, um, with the Federal Reserve Bank and, and what they've been able to do in this country in the Great Depression and the ensuing years, they've taken over our entire economy. And, and we might be the next Bolshevized, um, destroyed nation, what, what they did to Russia in, in 1917. Well, when they banned all the churches, but they never closed the synagogues. And it's... Well, I guess at this stage of the game, you know, uh, communism, socialism uh, is probably an improvement to what we're seeing here, because at least in those societies, you get free health care. <laughs> you know? well, well, I don't know if we're going to get done. I don't know if you understand well, now, the harm. We're not going to get free health care, I'm just saying. You know, right, right. The health care industry is kind of like a it's – kind of, it's really similar to Wall Street, the way it works. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a completely dysfunctional industry. It's designed to uh, steal wealth from Americans and uh, impoverish them. Well, that's what uh, it's done. Insurance business. And, Every and, insurance and meanwhile, well, you look at meanwhile, not just the insurance business, but the whole medical industrial complex. If you look at, you know, we pay twice as much on average as Western Europe uh, for our health care. Yet there's 50 million Americans who don't have coverage, and um, our our life expectancy is lower. Um, well, and you have about you have about one million medical bankruptcies every year. Medical bankruptcy does not exist outside of America. And so what people don't understand, you know, you talk to all these people that are brainwashed by the media, they don't have a clue about healthcare, but they don't understand is that all of this excess money is going to Wall Street, it's going to the insurance companies, going to the drug companies, it's going to the, the hospitals, and the, and the, and the overpaid uh, medical professionals. You know, it's just shocking to me how the media has controlled everybody in this country, essentially, essentially everybody. And as a result of that, the people are responsible for their own demise. Because the people are the ones fighting for their own demise. They don't even understand that. They don't see that. Because they go to the media for their information. They think that the media is giving them both sides of the argument. And, that's, and it's not. It's designed to make you think they're giving you the, 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 the argument between so-called free market health care and so-called socialized medicine, and they're not giving them the real argument because they're not putting the appropriate uh, individuals representing the other side there. It's made, designed to make you side with the uh, the corrupt side. And, you know, and by the way, the whole term socialized medicine was created to tarnish universal health care. It's a derogatory term. It was created, but I can tell you right now, um, that's one of the problems with our trade policy. If we're going to trade with nations throughout the globe, we need to have universal health care. Otherwise, we're never going to be on equal footing. 
Well, well I, I, I would agree with you to an extent, but I have to disagree where I don't know if a, a, if a universal health care system can possibly operate normally in a, in a multicultural, diverse society, but which is a balkanized society. What was people yeah, with different well, it, it functions well in Europe. It functions well in Europe. They have they have superior health outcomes. They live longer. Um, it, it, Europe now is multicultural. It functions well there. I don't know why. Well, it functions well in some nations in Europe. It functions well in Scandinavia, where it's pretty much still homogenous. But it doesn't function well. That. It, it doesn't uh, function well in Britain and France. Of course it does. Well, well, that's not the reports that I have from my British and French listeners that, well, that come in and and talk. I, I, I mean, can tell you. Well, I can tell you. All I can say is read America's Healthcare Solution. Go on the website, look at the exit, read that. It's a thousand references. I'm not just somebody. I don't write about something unless I have expertise. I worked. In, I worked actually in the venture capital industry in healthcare, uh, in telemedicine, and I did extensive research. And I can tell you that universal health care is the only way unless you want to get ripped off. Okay? If you want well, well, to get ripped off, it is shown in the fact, it is a fact that um, um, for-profit hospitals charge more than non-profit hospitals. It is a fact that America is fifth or sixth from the bottom of all developed nations in life expectancy. And when you adjust for all of the um, arguments such as, you know, high rate of smoking or this and that, you don't get any difference because there is actually higher rate of smoking in, in other uh, European nations. Uh, this has all been accounted for. Um, you know, I think that the sources that you're looking at, they've been fed baloney through, uh, <laughs> through propagandists. I looked at all the research, and I'm telling you that universal health care is the best way. Remember, health care is a basic necessity. Would you not agree for a modernized nation? Well, well emergency health care for, for accidents and things like that, that's definitely a basic necessity, yes. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and, and that, saying, traditionally, that, that traditionally saying, was. I'm not saying that all, every single aspect of health care should be provided by the government, I don't think it should. As a matter of fact, in my book, I don't even argue for you. I actually argue for and create a solution for free market health care. However, you know, preferably, I think it would be better in the universal health care. Because I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to open up a can of two, or two cans of worms, you know, talk about universal health care and then talk about, uh, you know, a free market solution. But, but I think that we need to have a basic level of health care. And, and then let individuals decide um, how much they want to pay for other types of health care, for, for, for more advanced uh, health care. And, by the way, when you hear arguments against universal health care, um, what country or countries do they compare that to? What, what, what countries do they use? They go to Canada, right? Well, well, that's generally the the most compared nation is Canada. Yes, it's it's almost exclusively you know it's, it's the only one I've heard. Um, why do they go to Canada? 
Because Canada is the worst case. Why? Because Canada got rid of their private insurers. They got rid of the private system. That was a mistake. In contrast, so why don't you ever hear about Japan? Why don't you ever hear about England? Why don't you hear about Switzerland? Why don't you hear about Western Europe? Because if people heard about those countries, they would see the reality. So they want to go to Canada. And by the way, the Canadians are, are very happy with their health care, and they still can't believe that we actually have to pay all this money. <laughs> so, you know, but, but they, they go to the worst case. You know, Switzerland has almost 90 private insurance companies. You can have universal health care with private insurers, and you should have that. But you have to have a basic level of health care because we don't even have health insurance. By the way, of the million, one million medical bankruptcies every year in this country, according to Harvard research, 58 to 72 percent, I believe, or it could be 78 percent, in other words, the majority of those one million medical bankruptcies, they had full health insurance. What does that tell you? That tells you that you don't really have health insurance. You don't have health insurance. You have prepaid medical that sticks you with a huge bill when you need health care the most, okay? Because people don't understand. They think that they're insured, and they think that they can pay a 10 or 20% deductible or copay, I mean. They can pay that copay, but wait until you get a cancer diagnosis. See if you can pay 20% copay on a $3 million bill. Well, well, there's no doubt in my mind that there aren't a whole lot of other problems with our healthcare system, but I think that the first one is the pharmaceutical, the, the pharmaceutical industry and, and the, the way they've bribed all of our doctors and have most of our population on one sort of drug or another. There's a whole lot of things that have to be cleaned yeah. up. There, oh, you know, there, there are a lot. There, there are a lot, and it is the pharmaceutical industry. It's you know, it's, 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 it's a tough call between whether it's them or the insurance. Um, maybe the pharmaceutical may, might edge out, but it doesn't end with those two uh, sectors for sure. There's problems that I've seen in every single aspect from the, uh, uh, the fraud to the actual physicians. You know, in the, in the medical schools, they basically train physicians. They don't train them. They actually kind of tell them to kind of be entrepreneurs. And um, they don't train them to be entrepreneurs. But they tell, they kind of, they kind of hint to that in certain aspects. And when they go into private practice, they're inundated with all of these providers who tell them, "Hey, you know what? You should buy a, a uh, X-ray machine. So it's an investment for you. Okay? It'll pay off." So what happens? Well, you got all these doctors who, who are running X-rays they don't need. Why? Because that's their investment. That's their ATM. You see. And that results in medical overutilization, which ultimately drives up the cost of health care. There's numerous problems. And I think that, you know, to really understand the solutions, you have to understand all the problems. And most people are not exposed to the problems. They're exposed to one or two aspects, and then they're given um, solutions, such as, for instance, the big one is that, you know, the big, the big solution that people think uh, would do something is uh, tort reform, Right to curb the medical malpractice lawsuits. Well, hey, you know what? I'm not a big fan of attorneys, but, you know, the medical establishment needs to have the risk of the threat of lawsuits. Because if they didn't, there'd be even bigger problems. To give you an example, when, when a physician 
has problems such as a drinking problem, a drug abuse problem, the AMA almost never will take away their license. They continue to, there's numerous cases that I've documented, they continue, and we're talking about repeat offenders, they continue to allow them to practice medicine. And, you know, it's, uh, the AMA is, is, is one of the biggest problems with the healthcare industry. Because, you know, of course they were kind of, uh, they were spawned by, uh, were spawned by uh, Rockefeller. And, uh, the, the intent was to basically push out all other forms of medicine and to make this one the, the acceptance form because it was the one that offered the most profits for money. And so, you know, you know, Regardless, we have to deal with it because it's what we have essentially. But but it, it's not it is not operating well in the system that we have, which is not even free market, by the way. We don't have free market health care, and we haven't had it for a very long time. But you know, we, we probably don't have time to go into that because the whole health care issue is a, it's a it's a very long topic to discuss. But you know, the bottom line is I want to emphasize: universal health care is the best way. Does it mean that the government is involved in all uh, forms of healthcare? It means that they're providing a, 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 a basic level of coverage. Now, what that coverage would be, you know, is, is subject to debate. But the government needs to provide a certain level because if they don't do that, you're going to get green. Have you been to the emergency room? Have you been to the emergency room? Well, well, I really believe that when when people start to see the costs of the universal health care bill that act, that that has passed Congress, so hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, let me stop you, let me stop you. That's not universal health care. That's not universal health care. Well, well, no, but they, 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 you know, it's forcing everybody to have insurance, and it's forcing everybody to pay these Jew middlemen. Listen, that's not universal health care. Don't be fooled, okay? That's a, that's not universal health care. It's not even universal coverage. The Obama, quite, he promised universal health care, and he, he, he wasn't even involved in the negotiations. He let Ron Emanuel take over, and he turned universal health care into, or, 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 or health care reform into health insurance reform. Yes, he didn't even health care insurance. Don't, don't, don't confuse. You need to read my articles on Obamacare, okay? I, I smashed that. I try to stay away from Obamacare because I, I understand that it is all in, in, insurance driven. Don't, and, don't, and no, don't confuse. Don't confuse. Universal health care means one payer. You have a one payer system, and the payer is the government. Okay, it has nothing to do with Obamacare. That is not universal health care. Universal well, health care. Universal health care means you have a single payer, the government, and when you have a single payer. You're able to you're able to control the prices. Why do you think we pay more for prescription drugs than everybody else in the world? Every time you buy a prescription drug, you are subsidizing the cost for everyone in the world. Despite the fact that we make the most prescription drugs. The reason why we're paying the paying the most is because we don't have the bargaining power, you see. We don't have the bargaining power that universal health care countries that universal health care has. So no, you don't confuse Obamacare with Universal because it doesn't even resemble it. There's nothing to do with that. If you want Universal well, Healthcare, right. you want it's, to... universal, it's universally mandated insurance, is what it is. It, it's it, it's, it's not Universal Healthcare. It has nothing to do. It doesn't even resemble Universal Healthcare. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even cover everybody. Even Obama's, it doesn't even cover everybody. 
It leaves out uh, 25 million people. It, that is not universal health care. It doesn't resemble it whatsoever. If you want an example of universal health care, then look at Canada, look at England, look at Europe. But no, Obamacare is not universal health care. And Obamacare is just, is just, it's basically George Bush care part two. Okay? It's, it's, it's just like Medicare part B. Every single bill, health care bill that passes is always going to favor the health care industry because the health care lobbyists are the most powerful lobbyists in Washington next to APEC. So, you know, the healthcare, you know, you'll notice that, you know, remember, Obama promised to reform the healthcare industry, but he changed that to health insurance reform, right? It was only addressing the health insurance. But, you know, he, his, his rhetoric was okay. It sounded like it might be somewhat okay if he had a government option. But notice, he took out the government option. Why? I wrote articles talking about how Max Bacchus was paid off. He was the guy, uh, Senate Finance Committee, I believe, who was, this guy was paid off by all the lobbyists. He got it shut down, you see. So if we had a government option, it would have, that would have ensured kind of a fair play because the, the government would have been competing with the insurance industry. The insurance industry didn't want that because they, they engage in collusion and they have uh, virtual monopolies. In, in regions and states throughout the country, you see. That's why they got rid of the government option. So that would have, if we had a government option, that would have potentially addressed one aspect of our health care system, one of many aspects. So even that, if it were passed with the government option, would not have resulted in universal health care. We are very far away from that. And it's not going to happen. That's just like saying we're going to end the Federal Reserve. You know, the healthcare industry, um, before Obamacare and, you know, since Obamacare has passed, it's the same. It's gonna, it, all they're gonna do is pass the higher cost on to us, right? So. Well, absolutely. The insurance companies are gonna loot and pillage us some more. I mean, There's no doubt. Yeah, just, just, just understand, you know, keep, keep this in mind. I'm obviously for the people, right? So, and, and obviously I'm not a, I'm not a coffee table, uh, debater on healthcare. <laughs> I've done extensive research. I've worked in, I've worked in the, the venture industry, venture capital industry on healthcare. Um, I've done an extensive background, uh, in that area. So, you know, if I'm coming across with, with a view, I think, you know, you should, you should say, you know what, maybe this guy's right. Uh, <laughs> Because, well, well uh, I don't admit it to be my area. I just don't think it could ever be cleared up until you break the hold over physicians and hospitals that the pharmaceutical companies have. And it's that yeah, they yeah, have that the is, whole world on drugs, and, and they have is, half the country on prescription drugs. That, that is certainly one aspect. However, you know, there's a lot more physicians now who don't even want to – they won't even see – they won't even meet with pharmaceutical reps. Um, it's, it's, so that relationship, it's more than that relationship. It's, it's all about, um, you know, you've also got the HMOs who are telling the physicians, hey, you know what, you've got 10 minutes to treat this patient. So the physician, they're, they're basically giving people pills because they don't have time. Right. So it, 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 it's, a, it's a complete, you don't, you don't see that situation in Europe, you know. But addressing the whole health care issue, it goes beyond 
it goes beyond the direct healthcare industry. You also have to address, of course, the food and beverage industry, right? Because the preventative medicine, um, well, that in itself would save an enormous amount. So this is why it would but, never happen. But that's happen. also filled with a lot of Jewish scams. I mean, the high fructose corn syrup, the, the Coke, right. the Coca-Cola, the fast food, it's all garbage. They're shoveling garbage down our throats. And, and, and for the sake of high profits, they, they've killed the local food industries, that they've taken all the nutrients out of our foods while they killed the local in- food industries by, by feeding us mass-produced animals and, and, and um and, and greens that, that have been grown artificial in, under very artificial circumstances. There's a whole lot of problems with our food industry. And, and yet, that's where the healthcare industry starts. But if you, you know, just take a look at the OECD report on, uh, on healthcare. I mean, look at the, 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 the critical statistics on healthcare, and the U.S. is, is, is towards the bottom of, of, of almost every one of them. Uh, infant mortality is a joke in this country compared to other countries. And people say, well, you know, we've improved that. Yeah, we have, but we haven't improved it as well as other countries, our, our peers. Um, so, you know, it's it, when you put profits in front of health care, who do you think is going to win? If the profits are always going to win, the people making the money, your health care decisions are going to be made for profits. You have well, well, people of course, that want but it's just so, so, you know, and this is why you've got medical device companies, um, the pharmaceutical industry in Europe. Every year they come out with a strategic business plan how to target the U.S. Because it's a gravy train here. It's a complete gravy train. Whereas in Europe, uh, in each of these countries, or most of them have universal health care, they have the bargaining power of one payer that says, you know what? We represent 100 million people uh, or 50 million people, and we're only going to pay this much for this drug. We're not going to pay anymore. And, you know, the drug companies, they have, they have to deal with it. And so what do they do? Well, they're not making enough profit. Well, they raise prices. Well, they, they, they charge us more money, you see. So, you know, of course, we you know, also have to address the not only the AMA, but the FDA. And, of course, the AMA, by the way, creates intentional shortage of physicians every year uh, so that there's, there's, there's no unemployment for physicians and any of the shortfalls that they have, they bring in foreign physicians. So, you know, the whole system is a wreck. It's a complete mess. And Europe is much further ahead of us in modernizing their healthcare system in terms of, of, of healthcare information technology and telemedicine, without a doubt. Have you looked at the Jewish control of the healthcare system and the Jewish control of the pharmaceutical industry? I'm just curious. Well, I haven't looked at it per se, but I know they control that just as much as all of the other corporations. Yes. Um, You know, all you have to do is just, I mean, just look at, uh, just go ahead, go right now, take a a pharmaceutical, large pharmaceutical company, look at the executives, look at the board of directors. The, uh, I believe, you know, the uh, CEO of Pfizer is a Jew. Uh, oh, yeah, it's just like every other <laughs> corporate industry, it's, it's, you know. And when you look at, um, um, you know, and this, this of course, addresses, and, I, and I've written about this uh, in the healthcare book, is the fraud. When you have, you know, 
We're talking billions of dollars every year, of course, are defrauded from Medicare and Medicaid, um, most of which is done by large corporations, healthcare corporations. The health insurers, the pharmaceutical industry, um, and when, when they are caught, nothing happens. They're fine. That's all. These people committed taxpayer fraud. <laughs> and no one goes to jail yet when Ma, Ma and Pop have their medical uh, supply store or their single physician and they commit Medicare fraud to the tune of, you know, 5 or 10 or $20 million, they go to jail for 20 years. Have you noticed that? I mean, just go on, go on online right now and type in, uh, uh, you know, Pfizer or Merck and then type fraud. And you're going to see, you know, endless listings of the fraud that they've, that they've committed, and nobody goes to jail. But no, you're, going to see also, you're, you're going to see countless instances of individuals. When individuals commit fraud against uh, Medicare and Medicaid, they go to prison. End yes. of story. But when the corporations do it, they don't go to prison. Never. Well, well, that's true. I mean, this is, and, and this is a should. problem. This is a problem that no one's talking about. You know, it, it, it's shocking. It's just like you know, it's just like um, these individuals on Wall Street when they finally find somebody. And the SEC almost never uncovers fraud, by the way. Uh, the big case, the big cases of fraud are they're tipped off. They, they uncover the small cases, but these are individuals. They go to jail usually. Sometimes they face just as. Uh, uh, civil penalties, uh, monetary damages. But when do the big Wall Street firms, when do they send somebody to jail? They don't. And, and well, the, the Wall Street firms, the Wall Street firms are committing fraud on a daily basis, billions and billions of dollars. It's massive. That, that is one of the things I had planned to ask you, and, and especially when day trading took off a couple of years ago and it was a big thing, day trading on the Internet, people quitting their jobs because they were going to – in a boom in a boom economy, that, that in a bubble economy, they were all geniuses. I'm sure you know that, that they were, became day traders on the Internet. And, and we often hear those day, minor day traders engineering pump-and-dump schemes involving penny stocks. And, and you would hear about cases like that all the time in, in the pages of, of the, in, the, the, um, the financial journals. But you sh- you've shown on your, on, on your, um, in articles on your website that firms like Goldman Sachs do pump-and-dump schemes all the time, and, and they never get pulled over for it. They never get investigated for it, and, and no, they never. do it regularly. And, and you, never. It's just... It, 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 it's ongoing. I mean, it's just uh, it's massive. The the, the fraud, the the uh, the uh, all these these newsletter, you know, all these news there's all these newsletters by mail and email, all this stuff. I mean, if you if you trace if you trace it, it's it's almost majority. It's almost all Jews, and they're all in South Florida. I mean, uh, believe me, I've seen, you know. I mean, just try get on one of these lists. You get then your name gets sold. And you get sent all this stuff and. Uh, you look at who they are and where they are. They're all, you know, 95% of them are in South Florida, in uh, West Palm Beach, um, you know. And uh, of course, then you have all the Ponzi schemes. But the big stuff that's not being addressed is, of course, the Wall Street fraud. You know, it's just it's just unbelievable. It's you know, 
Well, well, I read the data. That, I, I read the data that you presented concerning Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs, and Facebook. How they evaluate, and and I understand that your article is a little dated, and and that's okay. It, it's still true, and and um, you, you said that Goldman Sachs had Facebook evaluated at fifty billion dollars, which is just incredible for a free service. And and well, it's a joke. It's it's, it's a scam. Now it's like you know, a hundred billion dollars. And the media says, you know, they're probably hundred billion dollars because some guys in venture capital. What what guys said so? The ones that are funding it, you see, it's a scam. This is this is this is this is, and I'm gonna have to go after this. But this is pure fraud. What's going on? They are telling and, and people. What I to ask people the, the media, they need the media needs to be held accountable for this garbage. They are telling people. I mean, what what what? How is a person going to know the difference? Do they know anything about valuation? They're going to believe what they're being told. Hundred billion dollars. Do you know how much hundred billion dollars is? I, I do understand that. I mean, that's like, that's like, that's, we're talking about, you know, probably, uh, you know, uh, four or five Dell computers. You know, we're talking about two Mark pharmaceuticals. I mean, this is, it's a joke. Facebook is a website. That's all it is. Right. I mean, you know, when you want to, when you want to find out why all these Jewish companies are always successful, Look at MySpace and Facebook. MySpace had the first mover advantage. MySpace didn't succeed. They didn't get the financing. They didn't get all this. Well, when Facebook comes out, all, all, the, all the Jewish Wall Street firms want to finance them, and the Jewish media keeps pimping them. Every time you turn on the TV, the news, the media follows on Facebook, follows on Facebook, follows on Facebook, right? They are infiltrating this stuff. MySpace was not created by Jews. Facebook was. And this is, a, this is a theme that you see all the time. You see that the, the, the Jewish firms that 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 that, that uh, continue to grow, because you have to have finance capital if you want to become a large company. Uh, you know, they they receive the benefit of their friends, and it's, it's, it's mass discrimination. I see it all the time, and it's a big problem. And uh, you know, but, but but you know, getting back to the valuation of Facebook. It's obvious. It, I, I even filed the complaint to the SEC about this Goldman Sachs fraud. Of course, they're not going to do it. The SEC is, is garbage. They're completely useless. And to be honest with you, I mean, a lot of the government agencies are useless, but you don't want to get rid of them because they do some good. But the SEC is a waste of taxpayer money. That is to say, without the SEC, we wouldn't be really any worse off. They don't do anything. All they're doing is creating this false impression that they're policing the system. And they're letting the big criminals get free. Go free. So when they do, you know, come across somebody that, that, that's, they're really not hurting anybody. It's, it's so small. The, the Bernie Madoff, Bernie Madoff turned himself in. The SEC didn't, didn't uh, catch him. You see? So, you know, it, it's just shocking. Whenever I see this, you know, Facebook, $100, million, $100 billion, that's ridiculous. That's that's a lie. That is fraud. Well, well what about are, the fund managers? Are the fund managers really going to buy Facebook and it's, when it's evaluated at $100 billion? Shouldn't they be policing that? Or are well, they that? Well, you have to understand. This is why they all create this, this illusion. You see, they get in knowing that people, it's pump and dump. There's several levels of pump and dump. Goldman Sachs, their clients are not going to lose. Their clients are going to make money almost 100% guaranteed because their clients are invested in the private shares, shares in the private. And then you're going to have 
uh, investors that get in, um, you know, just before it goes IPO, um, almost guaranteed they're going to make money. And then you're going to, so, so, so several levels of pumping up. The fund managers that, you know, they're going to get out, um, and they're going to dump it onto the naive public. I mean, I, listen, I, I'll go ahead and guarantee you that if Facebook is valued at $100 billion, that people who buy the shares um, and, and hold it, they're going to lose. They're going to lose their butts. It's just like Twitter. Twitter and LinkedIn, who do you think runs those, those garbage media companies? The, the Jews. Well, right. And LinkedIn. Jews. LinkedIn. Group on. Who do you think runs that? You see, there's a, these things are being hyped for a reason. And we did all well, these well, things. Read, the I'm sorry. I, I read mean, Google's reporting. LinkedIn is another, another scam. Complete, complete ridiculous evaluation. And I, I filed a complaint about them as well. I forgot the valuation. It's, it's several billions of dollars. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And, you know, they went as high as 115 or so. They're 75 now. I mean, I'm telling you right now. I'm not, I can't, I don't have the crystal ball because, you know, the thing is when you get a lot of money through an IPO, it provides you with a lot of financial capital. And what you can do with that is you can make a lot of acquisitions, right? So you have a, you have right. a chance of, of building your company. Doesn't mean you're going to, you have a chance. So the point I'm trying to make is that LinkedIn, in my opinion, most likely will be a $15 or a $10 stock in a few years. Now, if they may not, that, but, but I can tell you right now, the only chance they have is to use that capital they raise in their IPO and also to sell their shares in the open market to make tons of acquisitions because their business as it stands is complete garbage. <laughs> it's just, it, it's just mind boggling. Well, well that's, like, like, that, that's like raising money to steal companies. That's what it sounds like. Well, of it, course. It, it's, it's, it, 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 the whole Wall Street, you know, I, I recommend if people are not on the inside, they should just stay out of the whole Wall Street thing. Right, I believe so. I, I would guarantee that. You, I, you're, not I, gonna I find, you're not going to find anybody who's in my position say that. <laughs> right? No, absolutely not. It doesn't help me. But I'm telling people, listen, if you're not, if you don't know, if you don't really have a competitive edge, you don't want to stay out. You're going to get nailed. Right. I mean, my, even myself, you know, I, it's a challenge for me because all these guys, 99% of the hedge funds, 99% of the, of, the, of the major hedge funds are involved, in my opinion, in insider trading. Okay? All these guys are involved in insider trading. I'm telling you, so many of these guys out there, it's insider trading. They rely on insider information. I'm not saying all the hedge funds, some small ones, but 99% of the large ones are involved in the trade. I'm telling you right now. It's, it's just, it's a big scam. It's a big, Wall Street is a huge scam. And there's so many levels of scamming going on. You know, a few years ago, they found out about the mutual fund after our trading scam. Nobody went to jail. I'm telling you, there's so many scams. In the future, the commodities market is even worse. If every every retail investor that trades futures and commodities, they're getting ripped off on every single trade. That is a fact. They're getting skimmed. Mark my words. Trust me. There's no doubt. Across, it's it's, it's run across, as a crime. It's a crime. If you run across an honest, an honest commodities broker, 
which is as doubtful as possible, if you ask them about that, they'll tell you that they're getting scammed. Because there's virtually no regulation in the futures and commodities market because it's very primitive for the retail investor. They are operating today where Wall Street was 30 years ago when Wall Street was skimming off of trades, you see. Yes. And, well, and by the way, and by the way, Wall Street still does skim off of trades. Not, not retail, but institutional. As a matter of fact, there was just a lawsuit. Uh, I forgot who it was. Some, some, some a pension fund is suing, uh, one of these firms for, for ripping them off on, on, uh, on, uh, trades for, um, foreign currencies. It's a bit, right now, the retail investors aren't getting screwed so much, uh, on, on, on trades as the, the big guys. Because the big guys don't go, they go through a different exchange. They go through, they basically go directly to the trading desk. I mean, believe me, I, I, I knew not firsthand, but when I was at Bear Stearns, I knew of one particular individual. I'm not going to say the name. Um, it's a pretty, pretty prominent for some reasons now, who was ripping people off on trades, ripping his customers off. I don't know this for sure, but I told this to people who were there longer than me. And they, it, was, it was known. And they knew it from because the back office. The back office of these firms know. Back office sees it all. These are the guys that could be the big whistleblowers to make all the money. Well, well, I would advise anybody to stay away from all of it. That, that's my personal opinion. I, I, I'm not I, an I, analyst. I, I, I see. I mean, I, I would uh, my, myself personally, if I didn't have the, the knowledge and experience that I that I gained, you know, there's no way I would even attempt. But of course, that would imply that I would have to know what I didn't know, and you know. Right, and, and that's the problem. The people don't understand what they don't know. They don't. They don't right. have that perspective. That's the problem. So people think that they can, you know, they can do this and that. And that's why they get suckered by watching CNBC and they listen to the media, thinking they're going to get some, some type of, you know, special uh, news. It's just, a, it's just, you know, it's just uh, it's a greed effect. You know, people are their own they're their own worst enemy. You know, they're looking to make easy money. And those are the people who, who end up losing all. Well, well, I think that's the, um, that's the important lesson that the listeners here learned tonight was to stay away from the financial media and, and what they're recommending and to stay all away from the gold bugs. Stay, stay away from the gold bugs. Well, well, right. Well, and, and most of the people here understand that the newspapers are, are giving us the wrong information when it comes to politics, international relations. Yeah. But but the financial media seems more innocuous, and I think people are more apt to to follow it sometimes. Yeah. Well, and of course the danger is that you know, uh, you know, once they once they start to distrust the mainstream media, then they go to the alternative media, and that's not any better because then they're getting duped there as well. Uh, You know, the rule I the rule I I've come across that seems to hold pretty well is if somebody is known, they have good exposure, then you stay away from them. And so it's all relative, right? I mean, obviously, guys like Alex Jones don't have the exposure as uh, CNBC, but in his realm, he's had a lot of exposure, right? And you know, right. I mean, you know, so you don't you, you stay away from those people because they have exposure for good reason. Because yes. the media, I mean, you know, Alex Jones, I'm sure as you know, uh, you know, he's he's got a lot of involvement. With several Jews, and in fact, his, his attorney, the same attorney as Edward Bronson. 
Well, well, my rule of thumb here is that if you don't name the Jew as as, as the, the the chief culprit behind the degradation of our society, then then you're probably a shill for the Jews, almost certainly. And now Alex Jones fits right into that mold. Oh, without a doubt, you know, without a doubt, there's no doubt about that. Well, well, I want to thank you for being here and taking your time to talk to us tonight, Mike. Uh, and um, I'm sorry the talk show gave us such a hard time. And I would have really liked to have talked about a few other topics, but I will. Um, I will give people links to your book, and and I think it's a very important book that that America's financial apocalypse, and, and also to your healthcare books and and your other books, and let them make their own mind up concerning the the um, universal healthcare. And I'll try to get to read it. Before the end of the year, for certain, I'll get to your universal health care book. I would like to see some of your arguments in, in that perspective. And, and thank you for being here, and, and it's been very interesting. Pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, everybody, thank you for listening, and, and it's it's um I think it's been a productive program. And people can hear it from, from, uh, I would highly recommend people go to avaresearch.com and read some of Mike's articles. He, he really spells out a lot of the fraud in, in, in our securities industries and, and Wall Street and how they manipulate the media and, and how they manipulate our government, and he really, some of his articles really spell that out, and, and they're, they're a very worthwhile read, and, and you'll find them at avaresearch.com. I will be here Friday with Mark Chapter 12. Thank you, everybody. Praise Yahweh, and good night.